Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Hello, Izzy Judd. We've never met, and yet... I feel I know you. I've been listening to your podcasts and looking at your book and exploring and learning about you. And I feel delighted that we're going to have what feels like a really important conversation. You're a musician and a violinist. You're an author and a podcaster and a mother of three. And you're also a mental health campaigner, particularly around infertility. The question I ask everybody who comes on to this show is what is a particular challenge you were facing or have faced? First of all, hello, Julia. Thanks hello. for having me. And thank you for that introduction. I always think I wonder what order that should be said in. Which so, order do you think it should be? I think probably in my head, it's mum of three. I think that's where so much of my mental load is thinking about those little people and then everything else follows. Although without those other things filling us back up, we're no good for the mum of three bit, are we? So definitely my biggest challenge or whatever's followed me around since forever has been anxiety. And I think anxiety has been the root of all the challenges I've faced, whether that's been through infertility, whether that's been through change of routine, need for control. I think everything stems from what I now call my friend anxiety that sits on my shoulder, ready to tap it when things are not quite as they should be. And I can really understand how in the mind-body connection, the two are completely interconnected, how being anxious would have played out in every aspect of your life, your professional life and infertility challenges and I guess as a parent now, do you understand the root of your anxiety? The root of my anxiety has always been when I feel out of control. I would say I remember as a little girl, it would present itself at night time. So it would be when I was alone. And when I say alone, I mean, obviously in my bedroom and dark. And I would catastrophize 
I have these memories of just thinking the worst and then believing the worst. And that fear would come in me through very physically. So I would, I remember I would shake and I'd really have to pluck up the courage to run out of my bed and go and get my mum. It started quite early, but I think what I've always struggled with is that there are many things which I have been very capable of. So for example, getting up on stage and performing on my violin or dancing when I was younger, you know, I did dance shows. So those things never affected me. It was the quieter times when anxiety would rear itself. And I think the worst it was actually was when I was in an electric string quartet called Scala and we went on Britain's Got Talent. At that time, I was actually teaching the violin. I was dating Harry, my now husband. I was doing sort of gigs. I liked my life. There was no unpredictableness to it in the sense of my life anyway. I mean, Harry was all over the place, but because of the nature of his work being a drummer, but I was able to just be consistent. So when Britain's Got Talent happened and suddenly you're catapulted into someone else's control of you're going to do this gig there, you're going to record this, you're going to do that. I think I feel very vulnerable then. I feel very out of control. And what if I don't feel comfortable doing those things? And what if I don't feel comfortable to fly to that place? The feeling that I wasn't able to make the decisions. It's almost like when you know what you're doing, whether it's on the stage, which for many of us would really amp up our anxiety enough here, you feel held by the sort of structure of the stage and when it is and what you're doing and you know how to do it. It's almost like when you have downtime and as a child, when you could imagine the dark night of the soul images that you could imagine, and it's almost like they became very real. And then that can tip into not having control, like when you're on the talent show, because that ignites that part of you, that small girl in the bed Mm. who needs safety. It's almost like you have an amazing imagination and you can shift it whichever way, but it can, sometimes it takes over you. That's it. And I think, interesting, you use the word safe, safety, because as a mum now, it's the last thing I say to my children at night is, all is calm, all is well, you are safe. Because I think feeling safe is the route to feeling calm and I don't know, safe. I think it's a really strong word and a powerful word. And I think, unfortunately, my family, when I was 12, my oldest brother had a very serious car accident and as a result was left brain damaged. And it really threw our (gasps) worlds completely upside down. And all the fear I had of catastrophe was almost playing out you know, my brother left and didn't come back. In effect, he's not the same person. And so that kind of amplified my anxieties. It just became very real. And so I think that's what made my anxiety even harder because the fear of losing a loved one became more real. And I was exposed 
to that at a young age when you're not emotionally ready to understand that. So I think that has a big part to play in in the anxiety as well. Yeah, I mean, that fits, doesn't it? Because Mm. it's a hugely traumatic experience for your whole family. It's like having a, a grenade lobbed in to what felt safe. We wake up in the morning and we have the same day today as we had yesterday, and that predicts a safe day tomorrow. But when your brother had that catastrophic accident, none of you could believe that anymore. So none of you could feel safe in your mind, in your Mm -hmm. bodies or around your kitchen table. And I imagine all of you experienced the trauma in slightly different ways, but all of you were very hyper-aroused, so you couldn't soothe each other. And where that takes me to is, do you know about the polyvagal system, Stephen Porges? Mm -hmm. I do. When you're sympathetic, when you're very aroused in red, where you're ventral, where you're green, where you can take in information, you feel safe in your body, or dorsal, where you shut down. But also co-regulation, that we are wired to be social beings. And so for that ventral place of safety, we connect with others Mm -hmm. to feel safe. We co-regulate. And I imagine with you there wasn't that place of safety because your mum must have been freaked out, your dad, the rest of your family. Yeah. And interestingly, what you're saying about shutting down, when Rupert had his accident, I was just reaching puberty age. My periods were just starting. I'm pretty sure that my system, when I was trying for a baby, just didn't believe that this was a safe place. And everything was going to all the other organs other than reproductive because we're very clever human beings. And if we don't think that we feel safe to reproduce, then we won't. And I I think that was really difficult because when you hear those people saying, oh, just relax or don't mind, if you've got like embedded trauma or a history of anxiety, it's really difficult. That's like your default place. And then you've got this added fear because what if I don't, what if I'm not a mother? Like, what if this doesn't happen? What if I don't get pregnant? And then that obviously enhances all the fears and everything else. So I'm absolutely certain that played a big part in my struggles with having a baby. Because... I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That to rest and digest and connect and love, we need to feel safe, that we're not going to be attacked, that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, that there isn't a threat coming at us, a predator. But also Mm -hmm. when people tell you just relax or don't worry, or if you stop worrying, you'll get pregnant, it's then Mm. a stick that you beat yourself with and actually want to punch their lights out with. (laughs) because it's the thing that you find most difficult. So given that was your challenge, what were the things that you were able to do that supported you to get enough balance that you could feel safe in your body? I think hindsight is a wonderful thing because on reflection, you know, I'm now here as a mother of three and putting my head back on to how it felt at the time is very different to obviously my perspective now 
However, I speak to many people who have gone through fertility struggles and everybody's story is unique and fascinating and the topic really interests me. I think there's still a huge amount that we don't know about in terms of how stress, trauma, anxieties sit in the body and the impact that that has. I think at the time, my medical diagnosis was that I had polycystic ovaries, which basically means, you know, the you've got plenty of eggs, but they're just not popping. So I was basically dormant in the sense that it, they were there. And actually, I remember my lovely gynecologist always said, Izzy, they're all there having a party. Just, you know, wait, they, it will happen. And, and it <laughs> always give me that reassurance on those scans looking at these eggs. But I did go into a very holistic space. I found thinking about my overall well-being, right from nutrition to exercise, but exercise I wanted to do like swimming and yoga and walking. One of the best lessons I learned about it was how to say no. Um, Because when you're on your route to project baby, I suppose, you realise how often we're people pleasing and doing things for others. And someone had said to me, make sure that you make this time about you. And I, I don't think I'd ever really thought of it like that. I'd always be thinking about what I needed to do for others. I think that's natural, isn't it? For all of us, it's very difficult to be selfish. Sounds such a wrong word, but that's the only word I can think of for it. But it really was to protect myself and to get through all of this. But also no would give you a sense of control, wouldn't it? Which is mm. the thing that enables you to feel safe anyway. Yes. But I was also thinking, Stephen Porges, who's the theoretician of, of polyvagal system, he talks about music, sound as something that's soothing. And it's so interesting that both you and Harry are musicians. So I imagine in some way, well, sharing music, but also playing music must have been part of what soothes you. I mean, I understand using all the holistic things. Yes, of course. But then also music can evoke um, emotion, not sometimes in a way that, like, for example, my mum, my brothers were all choristers at King's growing up in Cambridge. My mum hasn't been able to go back into the chapel since Rupert's accident because the music and listening to the choir boys brings out that feeling. So actually, when I was going through fertility treatment, sometimes I found it really hard to listen to music that I would usually find a comfort. It was almost like a grief in a way. I can't really explain it. But now having moved forward and in my pregnancies, music was a huge part of managing. And especially now in motherhood with the three kids, I've always got music on or I'm playing music. I'm actually just about to release some violin music because I've really wanted to get back to what makes my heart sing. When you become a mum, sometimes you lose, don't you? you? You forget the things that you want to do. Yes, it's a big part of of your relationship, isn't it? You know, there's there's you and your violin, you and your husband, you and your kids, and certainly your violin is one of the parts of you. 
But I was also really aware, listening to your podcast with Harry, how often around infertility and couples that experience miscarriage in the way that you did, that all the focus is on the mothers and that Mm -hmm. the mothers feel responsible, it's their bodies, their mothers feel failure, and that the fathers somehow get missed out psychologically and then that can role model for them missing themselves out. So they somehow think their job is just to support you and they don't include their own loss and their own worry and their own Mm -hmm. fears and I think that then also rolls into parenthood where you can forget sometimes actually a father's instinct is very strong and if you do everything then they're not going to be able to know what the routine is and so when you get cross (laughs) because they haven't done something a certain way it's because you've always stepped in and done it first so I do often think there were things through our fertility struggles that helped us, our marriage actually prepared us for parenthood when you're used to things just being accessible at a click of a button in our sort of pace of life, that suddenly motherhood, there isn't that predictability. You don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. So actually, in many ways, trying to find a positive out of that very tricky time was the tools it gave Harry and I as a couple, but also individually. But I think also you're right. I think often the blame is at the mother, the the woman has the infertility problem, you know, because we don't talk so much about the male infertility. And also, you know, if it's hard enough for women to talk about, it's going to be very, very difficult for men to talk about. So I think now conversations are opening up But I think there's still a lot more we could do in that area. Yeah, I mean, I think you've helped a lot in in opening up the conversation by being so open yourself. And also, you don't want to make something tidy like, I had a difficult time, I sorted it out and now everything's fine. But what? Because it never is. There's some way that you will always be haunted by your brother's accident, everyone in your family will, and you will always be haunted at some level with your miscarriage and your infertility, those really significant and piercing experiences stay with you and they influence your relationship with yourself mm-hmm. and your trust in life and your trust in life being on your side. And it sounds like you're aware that having gone through those difficulties, that parenting brings up different challenges about having lack of control or feeling anxious or also loving children, right? That, Mm. you know, wanting them to be safe and wanting them to be okay, you know, pushes all of those buttons. What have you learned from it? I'm sure Harry's mum won't mind me saying, but she lost her brother in a road accident. And when I talked to her about how I'm so worried that there's certain characteristics of a child I have, (laughs) which is quite similar to my brother. And Harry's mum and I were talking about this and she really understood the feeling of that trauma living on through the next generation or the fear of something bad happening. And so your relationship with that child is just a little bit different And I I was really appreciative of being able to speak to Harry's mum about that because 
I really felt she understood what I was trying to say. Obviously, I have a wonderful relationship with my mum and talk to my mum about it. But it was just interesting from a sibling point of view, when you've experienced loss within, you know, a brother or a sister. But when I think about what I've learnt, do you mean specifically more from the fertility? I think they're all connected, aren't they? They aren't like separate silos. No. And also, I think what I get from what you're saying now is that we get different things and different support and different parts of ourselves get ignited with different people. We do need these important conversations with lots of important people in our life, you know, our parents, our siblings, but also Harry's parents, his siblings, because they bring their history. And when you're in your own family unit, you share the history. And so sometimes being able to fully hear each other gets shadowed by the history that you share. Mm -hmm. I think when I look back at the traumas that I've gone through, I am able to connect them. So now when I have a difficult moment or I'm faced with the, with anxiety, it, when it comes around, I'm able to reason more. Okay, but this is why you're feeling like this. But you remember you're not the 13-year-old girl anymore, yeah. you know, or you're not the 20-year-old girl anymore, you know. You, you're Izzy, 39, mum. And I think where I have struggled is being able to let go of my younger self in terms of when I'm felt with and um, dealt with a new or faced with a new challenge to meet it as the person I am now rather than the person that I was when I was 13. This podcast is supported by Bamford. Bamford is a lifestyle and well-being brand dedicated to nourishing and nurturing your body and mind. Bamford's Bee Balance treatment encompasses this ethos and is designed around your needs, perfect to alleviate symptoms brought on by hormonal changes and long-term illnesses. The session starts with guided breath work and takes you through a bespoke bamboo tapping experience followed by a cooling gel massage across the whole body. You'll be left feeling lighter, well-rested, and more like yourself. Bamford are inviting listeners of the podcast to experience their targeted spa treatments at their wellness bars in London or the Cotswolds, and are offering a brilliant 15% off all bookings until the end of the year. Book your treatment online at Bamford, B-A-M-F-O-R-D, dot com com and use the code therapyworks at checkout also if you're keen to learn more about their new luxury private members club in the cotswolds that provides a 360 degree wellness experience incorporating health fitness and holistic well-being please visit bamfordclub.com a big thank you to bamford for supporting therapy works That sounds so powerful. And it, in fact, it fits with what Viktor Frankl talks about and Stephen Porges is that when you have the impulse that you can't control, the flow of anxiety that can come through your body for whatever reason, but when you have the capacity to pause, to step back, to reflect, which can be 
30 seconds, it can be five minutes. But to talk to yourself in a reflective way, like I'm not 13 in the dark, I'm not that 20-year-old, you then can recruit the part of your brain that thinks and thinks with more wisdom, with more capacity to reflect. And that informs your autonomic nervous system, your kind of emotional system, like, hang on, I'm not just about to be attacked. And it slows your whole system down. And then you can, that's a sort of um, circuit breaker. Yeah, I think every time I am struck by anxiety, the anticipation of something. And every time I know when I'm actually in the situation, I'm very capable. The anticipation is where the anxiety sits. It's the self-doubt. And anticipation is a horrible place to be rather than just in the situation where you do cope. I completely agree. And that's the same for me. If I've got to do something that's scary, I can really contaminate every part of a perfectly good day by worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or in two weeks' time or whatever. When you're actually in it, and it sounds like this is true, really true for you, you actually can show up, you can do what you need to do. But Mm -hmm. our imagination is limitless. When you fear something, what do you use? When I'm in real fight or flight, like when the anxiety is completely physical and has just taken over me physically, it's all about breathing. That's all I can focus on because it often happens in bed. So getting out of bed and just going somewhere else to just go and breathe. And then day-to-day mindfulness has 100% been an anchor. It's been the thing I love to share with my children. Um, And I love it because it's such a naturally inbuilt thing in them. This morning... We had the most just manic morning. It was just crazy before school. Everyone was just feral, including me. It was just... (laughs) Anyway, we got in the car and um, then my kids are used to it now. And I was like, you know, we're going to take five, which basically means spreading the palm of your hand and tracing the outline of your hand and taking five deep breaths. So as you go up the thumb, you breathe in and out. In and out, right? And I... So I do it with the kids and, you know, they kind of roll their their eyes up, mummy, and then they they do it. And this morning, my youngest, Lockie, who's nearly two, was just going, (laughs) you know, pulling. But I thought, you know, if I had a tool like that, you know, just to suddenly connect mind and body through the breath, which is our quickest way, isn't it? Mind and body connected. But for my children... I'm like, you need this. Actually, I need this. So it's something we can all do together. So yeah, mindfulness, I love. And I think it can be misunderstood. I think people think you need lots of time to practice mindfulness. And actually, it's all around us, especially as a mother, when you are busy and there's not much time. There are moments where you can just ground yourself for just a moment and use the kids as a way to help you with mindfulness. I completely agree. I mean, I think maybe social media is good about spreading the word of mindfulness and breathing and all of these circuit breakers. But also, I think it sets up this perfect thing that you're in an ashram or you have your meditation room with scents and a Buddha and you sit down and you take an hour and you breathe for an hour. Whereas Mm -hmm. I love that idea of breathing for two or three minutes in the car because it only takes like 30 seconds to actually 
breathe out your stress mm-hmm. and breathe in your calm and that your children learn it. So it's an embodied memory that is an embodied sense of themselves. I think everyone listening, mm. they can use that for themselves, but that for their families is so yeah, helpful. And the other thing with the children at night is switching off the body. So I'm going to put my toes to sleep, my feet, my legs, you go through the body. Um, They really enjoy that. And I do a story on their back. So I might say the sun woke up in the morning and I'll do a little span of my hand over their back, like the sun coming up. And then we walk down the stairs, gobbled up our breakfast, sort of try and do the actions But where I've also found that helpful is when they come home from school and you say, what did you do today? And they can't remember. When you put them to bed and I do the story, I say, well, I can't fill in the next bit because I don't know what you did. And then out comes all this. Well, then I did this, mummy. And can you do? So that's been quite a good little trick. But no, so. In my trade, that's visualisation, isn't it? Yes. That when, you know, rather than picturing these terrifying things that you did, Mm -hmm. if you implant, if you like, or sow the seed of a visualization with a comforting safe story and using your fingers as touch mm-hmm. so that it's an embodied sense. Yes. They snuggle in and go to sleep feeling safe. Yes, exactly. I've really enjoyed learning a few of those things. And I don't know whether it's because for me, bedtime was such an anxious time as a child. I've been it very, must be. very. <laughs> must be yeah. what I wanted. <laughs> I've wanted them to feel able to sleep in their own rooms. Sleep has been a big thing because I struggled so much with it. And so it's been really important. But sometimes my husband says, you know, it's okay if they come into our bed sometimes because I think he quite like a little cuddle. And I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you have to make the rules to be able to be flexible to to break them. And, you know, sleep is one of the core tenets of mental health, isn't it? You know, sleep, exercise, connection and what you eat. Mm -hmm. So that feels a really important one. And also you're laying it down now Mm -hmm. that they'll have their whole life. Mm. I was interviewing Lem Sissi, who's a wonderful poet and playwright. And he had this wonderful expression, which was, our childhood lives in us forever. And I was thinking... The childhood your children will have living in them forever is a very warm, safe, connected one. Yeah, Um, I often think about that because I think it's that thing, isn't it, where I feel like I've got to do the dishwasher at this time because if I get behind on that dishwasher, then the load's going to get bigger and and I've got to do the washing and then I need to, you know, and I'm in this role. But then you're also thinking, but I want to spend this quality time with my children and it's really tough. If I look back, that would have been happening in my house with my mum and my dad. But what I remember are the times that like my dad used to take me to Brighton every summer. We'd have a day in Brighton. And I remember that. It's not every day, is it? It's just those finding those chunks of time. And those are the things you remember. Little moments. Yeah, little moments. Now that you have successfully had three children and thinking about those that are listening who are still struggling to get pregnant or may have had a miscarriage, when you listened to other people who had struggled and then got pregnant and had babies, what was it that you needed to hear 
that enabled you to have hope, but didn't feel like, oh, well, they've got it. I'm never going to get it. It's such a Mm. difficult balance to get, isn't it? It is. When I had just miscarried, my brother and his wife found out that they were pregnant and didn't know how to tell me. And they won't mind me sharing this. I've spoken about it before. I remember just feeling so angry, but not at them. I was angry that I was had just been told I was going to be an auntie, but that I felt so sad. Yeah. And I was like, you know, not only has this struggle for my for having a baby affected me, but now it's going into feeling like that about my own family and then friends. And that was hard. But then devastatingly, they went on to miscarry at 12 weeks. And it was awful. And so I made a promise to myself from that moment that every time I walked past somebody in the street who was pregnant, that I would think to myself, I wish you a healthy pregnancy, even when I didn't feel it. Because you never know. You don't know what that person's gone through. You just don't know. And that used to help me a bit. And there are some days when listening to other stories gave me hope. There were other days when it just didn't feel okay to listen to someone else talking about it. So I think it's a case of it's okay to feel however it is you are feeling at that point. And if you need to, you know, with social media, if you need to unfollow people that are triggering you, unfollow them. There's no rules. As I was saying earlier, this time is your project baby. This is not anybody else you know if you don't feel comfortable going to that baby shower don't go you know and good friends will understand so I think it's really listening to your inner voice to get through it but I do think hope is a really key word I think for me I always had to have hope yeah and I think that I really agree with you on both in that to give yourself permission to be who you are and get your needs met as best you can, given that you're battling on this project baby that you don't have control of, and that anything that gives you a sense of agency or supports you, but also I think supports you to be the person that you want to be, and that when you start resenting other people, you then start not liking yourself, and that affects your mind-body connection, and you feel bad about yourself. It's awful. I mean, I remember just being pumped with hormones, with fertility hormones, feeling so far from myself in every possible way, physically, mentally. I did not want to see anybody. I was so miserable and probably looking back quite depressed. And I remember Harry just saying to me, I'd I'd had another negative pregnancy test and him saying, you know, worst case scenario, it's me and you. And I remember at that moment sort of thinking, I hadn't really appreciated that he was there. You know, Part he was in this with me. Yeah. yeah. And that gave me a that sense. That you were a family of, already. Uh, yeah, exactly. We would find a way, whatever way that would be, whatever outcome that would be. You know, we had each other. I remember a family member of mine who was struggling with the idea of getting pregnant. And the thing that helped her was again, it's feeding into hope, which is what Harry gave you then when it's, we've got each other. But her, then she didn't have a partner and hers was, I know that I can have a baby however I make that happen, whether I adopt a child 
whether I use donor sperm, however I do it, I know that I'm going to be a mother. Mm. And that gave her hope and that actually calmed her down. Yeah, it is extraordinary. I mean, if I sort of also think about it, when I, with my first pregnancy, so I miscarried and then we had frozen embryo, which was Lola, and we have one more frozen embryo, but I fell pregnant with Kit very quickly. And, you know, you hear those stories, but there has to be something, there has to be a reason why there's those stories. You know, what is it in the body that suddenly relaxes? You know, this isn't about going on holiday to relax. It's a shift. And it's very difficult to find that shift yourself. Your body knew how to do it somehow. It didn't know, and it did. Or you trusted your body or... And there are things that we can't explain with biology. There are things that do, Mm. in some ways, feel spiritual is it or Mm. that we just have to let it be nature yeah and actually even when you go through IVF the doctors have control of your body to an extent in terms of what medications they're going to give you and how much and when but you have control of your mind and how you're going to walk through that process and actually you know because people well unless you've been through IVF it's very difficult to sort of understand but when Harry and I went to have our embryo transferred, they projected a picture of the embryo on the screen. So we were in quite a clinical um, setting, you know, in our gowns. And it was certainly not how we thought we would conceive. No. But there was this embryo and it was just, it looked like a moon. It was the most kind of beautiful image on the screen. And Harry was really moved and oh. they let go of the pipette and the embryos released. And it's quite a moment. You know, I'll never forget. I'll it never is. forget that. Yeah, both no. both times that my embryos were transferred, you know, for a part of time, um, they were with me, you know. So especially yes. in that, that two-week wait, which is really tricky, I also found this sort of, of something, com- knowing that that was there. And yes. I did a lot of visualisation around that, a lot of imagining the lining of my womb being like roots of a tree, you know, holding on to the embryo and did lots. And actually that was Zeta West who did an audio that I listened to and it was all around visualisation. I found that really helpful. So there were things I felt able to have control over going through IVF. Yeah, that sounds so helpful. And I do think there is power in imagination and visualisation that can really Mm -hmm. make an enormous difference. But as we're coming to the end, looking back at yourself over this 10 years, I guess, or more, what is it you want people to know or what have you learned? Where are you now? That's like three different Um, questions all at once. You can answer (laughs) whichever one. Where am I now? I think I ask myself that daily. I think I have learnt to not please people that's and that's everybody from family members you know when you're bringing up a baby and everyone having an opinion (laughs) and trying to please everybody else to friendships to myself you know trying to you know be that perfectionist that wants to please that saying no but having your boundaries it's really um, key yeah looking back I think that's probably the thing that's shifted the most 
Good for you. And people listening, your music, when's it going to come out? The first track's being released on the 6th of October. So the first track is Stay Awake, which is a lullaby from Mary Poppins. And it's on my violin because I want to help other mothers and babies and children find a sense of calm in the chaos and hopefully listen to some music to soothe both mummy and child. And then soothe each other because they co-regulate. Yeah. That's such a lovely thing. And do you have a question for me, Izzy? Many, Julia. <laughs> I would like to know if looking back at your sort of journey of being a mum, is there anything you wish you had changed or done slightly differently or think you'd worried about and really it wasn't necessary? Well, in the first question, other things I'd like to have changed? Many. Were there other things that I still worry about? Yes. I mean, I think the main regret with my amazing children who are you know, incredibly forgiving, given that I was a very imperfect mother, is I did know a lot and somehow I didn't notice enough. I think the way I protected myself was by wanting them to be okay and believing they could be okay and not always acknowledging that they weren't okay. Mm-hmm. And I think if I'd stayed with the discomfort of things not being okay more and let them have space rather than being determined to make things better. Maybe paradoxically, things would have got better sooner. Mm. I'm not sure. It's so hard to look back. And I also, from a more compassionate place and a less self-critical place that I'd like mothers to have, is I think it's inevitable that we all make mistakes as a mother and recognize we're doing the best we can given who we are and where we were and what we knew at the time and I certainly feel that for my mum who's died she's been dead since 2017 but actually I've loved her more and had more compassion for her really thinking about her from a bigger perspective since she's died than I did while she was alive and I wish I could have told her. Mm. My mum says exactly the same thing And she often, yeah, she often says to me, you will tell me if I'm sounding like my mother. And when I tell her, she said, well, now I understand why she felt the way she felt. (laughs) I find that really moving, but also really helpful because you're absolutely right. Sitting in discomfort as a mum is really hard. You want to fix, don't you? You, And I guess that's why almost I want somebody like yourself to give me permission to sit in discomfort to know it's okay to not fix and that you're not going to make everything right because you feel like as a mother it's your responsibility to but you can't and that's really painful sometimes especially when you feel it's your genes that might be passed on that are (laughs) causing them the, the, the struggles they might be facing. Yeah I mean I think it's such a gift to be a parent and to have children and also the negotiation between being responsible, trusting them to let them be themselves, not to overparent, not to underparent, to find the way that is most attuned and most helpful is, you know, it's a daily, not struggle, but I don't think we ever kind of feel, oh, yeah, I'm really, 
I'm really doing brilliantly on that because I think every day is a bit different and every day you have to be flexible and reattune to yourself and to them. Mm. Yeah. If only um, they were a bit more predictable. <laughs> and if, and also <laughs> each child is so different as well. So when you think something works for one child and then you've got to completely rethink it for the next, it's, it's a lot to, to take on. But as you say, it's the greatest gift. Yeah. And it sounds like you're a really lovely mum to your children and that you both let them be themselves, recognise that you want to have control and recognise that fundamentally none of us have control. Oh, thank you, Julia. Thank you so much, Izzy. Thank you. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. I thought this was a recording that you two as mothers of young children would really relate to with Izzy Chad. So I wonder what really resonated with you and what gave you food for thought. Yes. I mean, I, I, have, a, a, I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> to say. Um, I mean, I think one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, but really sort of thought about when Izzy was talking was how little we know about fertility, but also how little we just know about the female body in general. And I think for so many years, there's just been a massive gender bias in research. So research typically has been done on men by men and then just like extrapolated out (laughs) to women. Yeah, sort of doesn't make any sense. Even as recently as 2019, less than 2.5% of publicly funded research was dedicated to reproductive health, even though one in three women will experience some sort of fertility issue at some point in their life. Good Lord. And I also discovered in my like, (laughs) my rant, (laughs) there is five times more research into erectile dysfunction, which affects 19% of men, than there is into premenstrual syndrome, which affects 90% of women. So I feel like that statistic really speaks for itself. When I was doing fertility treatment, and actually sort of just since then, it's baffling to me how sort of combination of this incredible thing of science that like, we can create you a baby, like, we can take Mm, your eggs and sperm and like, we can make human life. It's sort of completely mind boggling. And yeah, Dolly the sheep. Right, exactly. Like these extraordinary magical feats of science. And yet, uh, we don't really know why you can't get pregnant. Over 30% of female infertility is yeah. unexplained. <laughs> and it just, I think it's just completely mind boggling how those two things kind of can go together. And I think things in science are changing. Such an enormous gap, isn't there, between the scale of the consequence to someone's life around fertility if it's not possible? Uh, versus to how much research has been done into it. You know, it's just hard to mm. come to terms with. To me, it felt like when I was doing fertility treatment, it felt like a total 
sort of lottery. Like we're going to try this amount of this hormone and this amount of this hormone and let's just see what happens with your body. And then if that doesn't work, next time we're going to try this. And we're just going to sort of keep on trying this raffle <laughs> until until we sort of like hit the, hit the jackpot. Feels quite random. And that doesn't help that sort of whole experience that she talked about of not feeling in control, like not feeling in control mm-hmm. of your own body and feeling like you're not, that you're sort of failing in some way. It made me think a bit about with that part where she talks about um, making those decisions for herself about, she sort of said she couldn't find another word for selfish in the terms of there were certain things she just didn't have to go to or expose herself to. And I think around really sensitive and painful topics or moments in your life, like struggling with fertility or grief, um, miscarriage, things like that. Sometimes we try to be stoic about things like, oh, we should go to that party or we do, we, we've been invited to that thing. And actually, you know, there's avoidance, which over time can become problematic for us. But there's also then taking agency about how much pain we expose ourselves to um, at, at certain sensitive moments in our life, aren't there? And also finding words to communicate to other people. I think if you're in that place, often people accidentally say really insensitive things to you all the time. Um, and I think it's really okay to say, to flag that. I think lots of people suffer in silence around that. I really remember that my partner was like, oh my God, I've been asking all these people <laughs> incredibly invasive questions for like years because I, it just had never occurred to me that like asking if somebody wants to have mm-hmm. children could press on something and now I know and I won't do that anymore but it just wasn't even in my peripheral vision that that would be something that I I shouldn't ask and I know for myself I would rather someone told me and and then I would have learned from that so much earlier on politeness can get in the way right sometimes we just don't want to be uncomfortable or awkward and we kind of allow situations to unfold in ways we don't like because it's possibly a very British thing we feel like we we shouldn't be disruptive. Do you want to talk about anxiety? I did want to talk about anxiety. I've actually been reading a book about anxiety. It's called The Anatomy of Anxiety, and it's by an American psychiatrist called Dr. Ellen Bora. And she makes this very interesting distinction between what she calls false anxiety and true anxiety, because she talks a lot about your sort of basically the mind-body connection. And she talks about how False anxiety is actually probably coming from something that maybe you are putting in your body or depriving your body of. So, for example, if you drink a lot of caffeine or you really aren't getting enough sleep, like all those sort of basic physiological needs that everybody needs, if you are, or if you eat lots of processed food, all of these things that feed your anxiety, but it's not true anxiety, it's false anxiety. You can actually, it's fairly simple to deal with. You can probably find ways of helping your sleep or thinking about what you put in your body or moderating your caffeine intake. And then true anxiety is basically your body's emotional way of telling you like something's not right and that you shouldn't ignore Mm, it or try to get rid of it, but pay attention to it and listen to what it's saying. But the first thing to do is maybe kind of think to yourself, am I doing things with my body that maybe are increasing my anxiety or creating a kind of false anxiety? Or is this a true anxiety? And if it's a true anxiety, what can I do to sort of slow down and listen to it and kind of understand what's behind it? Because anxiety is really a surface emotion. 
and there'll be something that is driving the anxiety underneath. I mean, for Izzy, it sounded like something to do with control, like a real fear of a lot. When I talk to clients, I often describe it as like it's a bit like the fire alarm. You know, it's like something's not right rather than something in and of itself. And so it's a kind of something to be curious about, right? I wonder what set off my alarm bell. What is it that it's telling me? Rather than doing everything you can to turn it off by anesthetizing it with drugs, sex, alcohol, busyness, scrolling. So it's like, Give it space and airtime. And normalise it. It's really normal to feel anxious. I think it's kind of on the spectrum of emotions that we all feel. And when you should become concerned is if it's really impacting your capacity to do the things that you want to do in life. Like you can't go to school because you're so anxious something terrible is going to happen. I think also it can be helpful to turn towards it, but with compassion. So like when you notice you have your catastrophizing thoughts or you're in anticipation of something's about to happen and you're feeling very afraid, your sort of symptoms, I guess, of your anxiety, whatever it is for you, your palpitations or not being able to sleep, is to see it as information, like a flag, you know, like, oh gosh, I'm I'm really scared right now. I'm very afraid. And if that was somebody else, you'd be asking the question, what can I do to you that would soothe? It's not about fixing the fear or um, taking it away, but how could I support myself in this moment of fear? I'm really, clearly really, really scared right now. And to tend to yourself with care as someone who's frightened. And I think you can still be feeling scared and feel cared for. It's a much easier place to navigate from than one of fear and self-criticism, which is often what we meet ourselves with, which, you know, is often like having a scared child and then shouting at it and hoping they'll stop being scared. It doesn't support you. It makes you feel more frightened and more out of control. And also when you turn to yourself with that warmth and understanding, the anxiety will tend to drop and then you have more available to think clearly about what you actually need and what the problem is and get another mind to think with you, co-regulate and kind of think together, I've got this problem, what are my options? And get some plans. Whereas if you if you bash it and hit it, um, which many clients of mine do, they're like screaming at themselves, literally mm. screaming. And, and it kind of me like, make it mm. stop! <laughs> And often it, it's an inner child that's screaming, isn't it? I was also wanted to sort of talk about parenting and then the sort of guilt that arises from inevitably doing things that you feel are wrong. I think you talked a bit about your parenting mum and she was talking about her own. And I think I, I, I think one of the things I really learned from our family's ups and downs was that how much guilt can get in how much guilt can get in the way of being able to hear the other person yeah. on both sides and I really hope that I can tolerate the guilt as I'm sure I will have some enough to be able to hear my child I often think you know one of my children is very very can be get very angry and physical and I feel quite responsible for that to partly because of some particularly like difficult times we had when she was a baby. It makes me think of other podcast with Azaria with her children. Like, can I hold myself accountable without drowning in my own guilt so that I can actually show up? I definitely think about that. And I also think that often 
whatever it is, it's probably going to be the, the thing most. that pushes yeah. your button the most. Because <laughs> um, that just is often I don't know how, how it happens. I suppose what I also think is for both the adult child and for you as the parent, and I think I've spoken about this before, is to not have expectations that you're going to be able to accept whatever it is that your adult child has said mm. to you immediately. Maybe you, if you give yourself both a bit of time to process it, because I think that it might be something that you had no idea about and felt quite a shock and, you know, whatever it is, whether it's something to do with something that happened or the way that they felt as a child. And those are things that are really hard to hear as a parent. And probably the adult child has been thinking about them for a long time. So just to give yourself mm. both a bit of grace in allowing it to not be like the picture perfect, like, oh, I'm so sorry you felt mm. like that immediately. Like it's probably going to take some time for both of you be a bit bumpy and messy along the way and that that's okay as long as you're both willing to meet each other. I mean, I remember I feel so bad so quickly that I want to fix it so quickly. And what you're talking about makes perfect sense that these things, A, can't be fixed, but also they need to be lots of conversations over probably a long time to be fully aired and heard and have their way of landing and being received rather than being this sort of, oops, sorry. You might be met with a really angry reaction initially. Like you might say something to yeah. your parent and your parent has a big explosive reaction. That's what I was going to say. I think it's really helpful yes. Yes. to remember as an adult child that you have been thinking about this for a long time, but when you bring it to a parent, it's you're knocking on their door for the first time explicitly with the issue and it's you're coming from yes. it in a very different place aren't you that's good yeah. and I think that I think that's really lovely and um, this idea of like a period of grace right that's lovely thank Izzy Judd so much for her openness and her kind of insight she's really taken time to examine and explore herself and so given us ways into ourselves which I think are really useful and interesting thank you Emily and Sophie thank you to our listeners and do share this podcast, rate and review it. it, helps people find us. And look forward to you listening to our next episode. tell you about a podcast I love and honestly I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week, she speaks to an incredible expert, such as Gabor Maté, Dr. Julie Smith, and me, to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Just search Mother Kind.